Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and we have another podcast recommendation for you. It's Uli Bear's Think About It. On the podcast, Uli interviews all kinds of interesting people about all kinds of interesting things. He has three series that I'd highly recommend, one on free speech, another on great books, and finally, one on affirmative action. You can find Think About It on Apple Podcasts, or you can just go to Uli's website, which is ulrichbear.com. That's U-L-R-I-C-H-B-A-E-R.com. And you can download or listen to episodes there. We think this is a terrific podcast. In fact, it's so terrific that we're going to offer you a little taste of it. The episode you're about to hear is from Think About It, and I hope you enjoy it. We want to be happy. We want to get what we want. We want to love and be loved. But life, even when our basic needs are met, often makes us unhappy. You can't always get what you want, Freud noted in his 1930 short book, Civilization and its Discontents. And our desires are foiled not by bad luck, our failures, or the environment, but often by the civilization meant to make life better. So why isn't civilization set up to maximize our happiness and pleasure? Why does more civilization, more culture, also mean more psychological suffering? In his short book, Civilization and its Discontents, Freud shows how culture is not the refinement of humanity, but also an effort to socialize everyone into a system that produces the types of discontents and unease, which characterizes modern existence. Repression is not the problem of some neurotic individuals, something that we can overcome, but it is a necessary mechanism by which we become part of society. I spoke with Peter Brooks, an expert on Freud, who's taught at Yale, Harvard, Oxford, Stanford, the University of Virginia, and other universities, and authored many books, including Troubling Confessions, Speaking Guilt in Law and Literature, Psychoanalysis and Storytelling, Reading for the Plot, and with Alex Wallach, Who's Freud? Professor Books linked Freud's Civilization and His Discontents to an earlier text written in 1915 at the beginning of World War I called Thoughts for the Times on War and Death, where Freud noticed that the veneer of civilized behavior was very thin indeed, and that within months of the beginning of World War I, people who had coexisted very peacefully as neighbors right next to each other, often for decades or even centuries, were very suddenly and very quickly capable of inflicting the most gruesome violence upon each other. I ended up asking Professor Brooks if civilization and progress inevitably lead us to more psychological suffering, what's our way out? Oh, yeah.
Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret. It's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world with Uli Bear. I'm really happy to sit here with Peter Brooks. First of all, Peter, thank you for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure. So Professor Brooks is a Mellon Scholar in Comparative Literature and other departments at Princeton University, Sterling Professor Emeritus of Comparative Literature at Yale University. You've also taught at the University of Virginia. And when I ask you to talk about civilization and its discontents, Freud's 1929 or 1930 publication, you recommended another essay, which I hadn't read in a really long time, Reflections on War and Death, that he published in 1915 for the first time. That's right. It was published just after the outbreak of World War I when Freud, like other people, realized that this war was not going to be over in a few weeks but was dragging on. And he began to reflect on everything in civilization as he knew it, as cultured Europeans knew it, that was destroyed by the war. And he asks himself, where does this come from? And he comes up with the notion that there is a drive to destruction or aggressiveness that he hadn't sufficiently factored in before. That, as he puts it, people have a bad attitude towards death, which comes out in a situation like a war. They think themselves immortal and they wish death on their opponents. Right? So they deny the fact that they will die. So he says the bad attitude is we don't really acknowledge the fact that death will happen, death is part of life. Part of this is some delusion in a way. It allows, on the other hand, to think that other people should and will die. It produces this incredible violence toward others. That's right. And he said the war unleashes sadism in a form that he didn't take account of before. Sadism, not as part of erotic life, but as a kind of independent force in the world that wishes destruction on one's neighbors. And this will eventually lead in civilization's discontents to his theory of the narcissism of small differences. Right? Even peoples who seem very similar will go to war and try and destroy each other utterly. And, and I often think of the former Yugoslavia when it right. came apart, how destructive those wars were between a former neighbors and friends. And people who, from an outside position, couldn't be told apart. They had different names. And people in Bosnia and in Serbia, they would recognize each other only as by name as different. Otherwise, they were intermarried. They were neighbors exactly. lived together for hundreds of years. Exactly. So what Freud's identifying 100 years before that in 1915 is that people are ready, and not just ready, but willing to unleash the most horrific violence on somebody who they'd lived next to for so long in arrangements that seemed civil, that seemed cordial, that seemed connected. And... This kind of awareness, I think it's actually hard for us to reconstruct that World War I shifted people's consciousness to this degree, that it was so violent. That's right. And it came after what seemed like just about a century of progress, where the world was getting better, inventions were making people's lives better. Think of the extension of the railroad in Europe. You could travel anywhere, and Freud did. And he felt himself as a European man had become, as he puts it later, a prosthetic god, right, right. through technology. Right. And all of that seemed to be put into question by the war. And, of course, by the end of the war, when he is thinking about war neuroses, what we call shell shock at that time, he comes up with beyond the pleasure principle where he sees life as a struggle between two primal drives, one being eros, which binds things together and brings people together right. in love, 
and what he calls the death drive, right? Later gets baptized Thanatos, though not by Freud himself. And the war of these two principles determines everything. A very radical turn in his thought, one that a lot of psychoanalysts have never really accepted. But I think it's right and myself. It, it moves Freud from, if you think about it, from the sort of late 1890s, the studies on hysteria, and he's studying really the individual, the incredible drama in our unconscious life, the, the drama that's our family, and the struggle that we have, and most people, as Freud says several times throughout his long career, most people are not really happy. They adjust maybe with some difficulty to reality. And until this period, he says, well, they adjust, they develop neurotic adjustments, they sort of manage to accommodate the external demands of life and the internal demands. But then he starts focusing on society and culture in those essays. That's right. What he works out originally in regards to the individual, he starts thinking about in terms of the group, right? And he asks himself the question at the beginning of civilization is discontent. Why isn't man happy in culture? And he says to these, these three sources of unhappiness or unpleasure, the superiority of nature, the frailty of our own body, but then the relations we have with other people. And that ought to be a source of happiness and pleasure, right? But it turns out it's the opposite. And that's sort of the problem he sets himself in 1929 with civilization is discontent. Do you think it's a real legitimate question to think, why are we so unhappy? Why don't we just live with other people? We find our way through society and we all accommodate and we all know we have to live together. And what's interesting is this kind of puzzlement to say, why are we unhappy, although we claim to be so civilized? So the first time in 1915 said civilization is this thin veneer. Right. Cracks open and reveals this horrible, aggressive nature in man. And then 1929, he comes back and says, civilization itself doesn't seem to really promise all that much. It doesn't make us happier. No, that's right. The groups themselves are pathological, as he says. You know, I also see an echo of, or hear an echo of Rousseau here, right? That men and citizens are different things and different demands are put on them. That men can be sort of libidinally free, but once you enter the state of citizenship, the state is going to demand all sorts of restrictions on your pleasures. And you certainly, if you think of the French Revolution as being, in some sense, fathered by Rousseau, by the time you get to the Jacobins and the so-called Republic of right. Virtue imposed by Robespierre and his sidekicks, the individual has to give up all sorts of things in order to be part of the Republic because of Virtue. Because what's the idea behind this in Robespierre and the Jacobins, the, 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 this Republic of Virtue, that people have to subjugate he their own desires, interests to the collective. To the collectivity. And if you refuse to be virtuous, we're going to cut your head off, right? And, and we determine what's virtuous. Right. 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 The, the we'll tyran force you tyranny into virtue. of the good. Right. Yeah, right. But I mean, going back to Freud, I think that the great discovery of Beyond the Pleasure Principle is that it's inherent to groups and to society, to civilization or culture as a whole, that it creates unhappiness as it creates happiness. And that has to do essentially with the creation of guilt and with the role of the superego, right? If the superego is the internalization of the father, of the father's law, thou shalt not, right? First of all, thou shalt not have the mother. The more you become virtuous and obedient to the demands of your conscience, the more that conscience demands of you. The superego becomes this aggressive, destructive force working in civilization, creating more guilt than people can deal with. 
And initially, the idea of a superego is kind of the internal mechanism. We have internalized the restrictions imposed on us. I cannot go out into the world and do everything I want. I cannot run around naked. I cannot just take everything I want. I cannot eat all the food I want. I cannot sleep with everybody I want. There's social conventions and strictures to make everything work together. And then he shifts to say the superego internalizes this but becomes incredibly powerful. It restricts us all the time and makes us constantly feel guilty even about things that we don't necessarily need to feel guilty about. So civilization then becomes based in Freud's view on instinctual renunciation, renunciation of all sorts of things that we would want if we were in the state of nature. And this dynamic has a way of reinforcing itself and becoming worse and worse. So the more you renounce, the more your superego demands that you renounce. Because Freud says these instincts don't go away. They are tamed or somewhat restricted, but kind of repressed. They sit there and they need to find other channels of expression. Right, and cultural communities thrive on guilt. And here I would also want to bring in his last book, Moses and Monotheism, that he was working on at the time of his death, where he sees the Jews as the most guilt-ridden people, but also the most ethical. And the two things go together. I mean, according to Freud, Christians got out of the bind via St. Paul's notion of the sacrifice of the son, which redeems people from the guilt of killing the father. Right. Uh, right? But the Jews were never able to accept that kind of facile compromise. And therefore, they continued to live with this burden of guilt, but also to be the most highly ethical people. But it ties them together. And Moses, he says, the gang of brothers, you know, they either actually or symbolically kill this father figure. But then develop a kind of bond amongst themselves. And, and guilt, yeah. And uh, guilt, which uh, is uh, very strong. Uh, they remorse all know they from com- killing the father, yeah. They committed some crime or right. some transgression, right. and they all know we're in this together in a sense. Right. And in a sense, I mean, Freud's scenario on Totem and Taboo is that the primal horde actually gangs up on the primal father and kills him. Right. And then the sons essentially have to live with that remorse, and this creates guilt, and it creates the law. But... He also says later on that you don't really have to kill the father physically, right? right? You do it in your mind in any case. And what's interesting, what he's after is trying to think, how do people actually feel a bond with other people as a large group? He has this interesting section in Civilization where he talks about the Christian injunction to love thy neighbor. Yeah, which he says is impossible of realization. Why is it impossible for him? He said it's a brilliant an amazing stroke in Christianity to say love is all-encompassing. You must love everyone, especially your enemies. Right. And, I mean, he sees it as an ideal which needs to be deconstructed, if you will, right? Because, really, your attitude towards your neighbor is that you want to kill him. I mean, it can be ambivalent, right? right? He says, first of all, the neighbor also wants to assert himself or herself. And secondly, then he says this simple sentence, I can prove this because not everyone is lovable. I've always thought this sentence is such a strange sentence because it sort of goes to the heart of what Freud thinks the human is. He says some people are not lovable. So to impose love on all of us, that you have to love everybody, we know that not everybody's lovable. That's not real love, according to Freud, right? But it still becomes a really dominant force in society. And I think part of what the essay from 1915 and then Civilization and Discontents, he says, this is tenuous, this is thin. It doesn't really help. That's right. No, I mean, if you thought that society was held together by some however watered-down version of love thy neighbor as thyself, then you're okay, right? And then you can imagine societies perpetuating themselves and democracies 
compromising their differences, right? And even if you disagree totally with your neighbor, there's somewhere down the road, there's a compromise you can come to. He's saying that's not going to work. At least that's not going to work forever. And of course, he's writing, he adds the final sentence to his text just as the Nazi party is coming into power in the Reichstag. So, yeah. Which is really sobering and kind of terrible. He writes in 1915, World War One is going to devastate Europe and then the whole world. And then 1930, he writes this text and finishes it and completes it right when the Nazis. And Freud, as we know, stays in Vienna for several years. To the last minute. To the last minute and somehow thinks, this is terrible. Although he's seen people do the most horrific things. And then he finally is kind of evacuated with the help of Marie Bonaparte and other friends. And he gets out and his family, the remaining of family get out. But there is a sense in which... What do you think is the other mode of actually living together then for Freud? If he says the veneer of civilization doesn't hold. As soon as there's a crisis, people will revert or allow these things to come through. I mean, I see Freud as essentially a tragic humanist. The fact that he keeps reaching back to Greek myth, I think, is part of this, right? That man's capacity to be happy and to love is always very limited, both in time and in extent. And if you try to trace down the sources of your identity and your being the way Oedipus does, you discover that you're incoherent, right? You are this kind of bundle of forces. And after he is evacuated to England, and it wouldn't have happened without Marie Bonaparte and and Ernest Jones sort of insisting that the moment had come, right, after the Anschluss, then he, in his late essays, are all very pessimistic, and particularly analysis terminable and interminable, dates from 1937 or 38, just before his death. And he sees analysis essentially as never ending for the analyst himself, because he says the analyst summons up all these terrible demons in the human Mm -hmm. breast. Mm -hmm. And the only way for him to deal with them is to be analyzed himself. So this is kind of infinite recess in a process. And what you said, he's a kind of tragic humanist and goes back to these Greek figures, which are divided and can't really be happily reconciled. So Oedipus, we know, he knows what he knows, and he'll still commit all of the transgressions that he knows he should. And there's no way he can't, yes. It's fate, he can't know. We realize what he's doing is exactly what he was meant to do, what he didn't want to do. Seems to be a kind of dead end, we're trapped. And knowledge, or going through psychoanalysis, doesn't liberate us. It doesn't make us into a fully integrated person and say, this is my aggressive impulse, this is my erotic impulse, I can manage them and I can live them out. There's a lovely phrase somewhere in Civilization is Discontent about the mild narcosis of art. That's that's one thing you can look for in civilization, right? Right. But it only produces a mild narcosis. That's one way to actually get through life. Right, right. It's interesting, before he gets to this Christian idea of love thy neighbor, love everyone, he says... Love is a way for us to feel connected in such a deep way, in such a powerful way that actually we look for this all the time. Because we look almost to a fault for approval, for love, to be loved, because it can make us feel whole for a moment. Yes, and he turns at the end of the essay to the work of Eros, and perhaps Eros will find a way to get us out of this situation. But then... As he's doing the second edition, he adds that last line, because of the victory of the National Socialists in the Reichstag, he originally ended the essay by saying, 
And now it is to be expected that the other of the two heavenly powers, eternal Eros, will make an effort to assert himself in the struggle with his equally immortal adversary, that is, the death drive. And then he adds, but who can foresee with what success and with what result? So that sort of optimistic last line is then in the second edition, tempered. Because he fears, what is this question, with what success? He said, Eros could temper all this. We could find love or sort of... Right, right. One of the roles of Eros is to bind people together, right, in communities. And if you could imagine a community possibly where Eros was so dominant as in some utopias that it really ruled men, but that's a dubious proposition. And of course, he has some passing remarks to say about property and about socialists and communists. And he does think that our relationship to property is one of the great problems. Again, he's a disciple of Rousseau, but he just doesn't see what the communists have done in the Soviet Union has brought a solution to that issue. So Rousseau, first of all, says, in some ways, Rousseau also says civilization doesn't make us happy. It makes us actually more unhappy. Absolutely. Which is a very strange thing. You read this book, you say, we're the great fathers of, you know, democracy, of enlightenment thinking. And he says, knowledge, information, understanding makes us less happy. Freud has a really... Interesting rejoinder, he says, Min was maybe freer, but of course the freedom was totally useless because he was threatened all the time by everybody else. So he said, you can't take advantage of it. So there's no return to a. And there isn't, I don't think there is in Rousseau either. I don't think you can read him that. There's no way to go back to this. And then Rousseau says, property becomes the first you put on your stake, you mark your field, and then you tell somebody, don't transgress here, and then it becomes the site of struggle because I own this and you you can't own it. And then Freud says, the communists want to take away property, at least we'll remove this one thing we're all fighting about all the time. Right. And it's a hope for millions or hundreds of millions of people on the planet to actually remove one source of, which is greed, which has been so destructive in the history of the world. Right. And I think Freud realizes that property is a source of conflict and greed, but I think he thinks it's, it's not enough to take property out of the question because he sees that these are intrapsychic problems, the creation of guilt within people, and guilt becomes something that people can't handle. There's another wonderful, strange little essay for just a few pages called Criminals from a Sense of Guilt, where he says, criminology has it all wrong. Why do people commit crimes? It's because they have this burden of guilt that has to be enacted. So they go out and kill and kill someone because they want to be punished, right? It sets all of penology on its head. Right. But, so if it's internalized, if it's the internalized restrictions of society, why does Freud think it becomes such a problem for us? Wouldn't it be good if we all feel a bit guilty sometimes so we don't do things that are not appropriate? I think that's right. I mean, he's not against conscience. He thinks the superego is a necessary part. And it keeps watch on the ego and on the ego's relations to the id, for instance. But it becomes too powerful. It becomes a tyrant. I mean, the more power you give it, the more power it grabs Mm -hmm. until it becomes absolutely punitive. And I've always thought this must be based in part on Freud's personal experience. I mean, you're someone with a very high sense of morality and conscience that in the end it becomes punishing. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place 
happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When you think of Freud, he's also this ambivalent figure because he focuses his early work on women who complain of what was called then hysterical symptoms. He studied right. with Charcot in France, and he's actually quite interesting because he starts to listen to women. And as problematic as it becomes, because he ultimately will position women in the secondary status in a way that you know, they can't quite rival the status of the father in the household. And nonetheless, he listens to women for a long time. And he's clearly not in favor of the late Victorian restrictions on sexuality. And I think one major contribution is he says women have a sexuality that they deserve to live out. That's incredibly radical. Oh, absolutely. No, I mean, he's a liberationist in terms of sexuality. But I think as time goes on in his later work, he realizes that the liberation of sexuality has its own internal limits, right? There's something about sexuality itself which is unsatisfactory. It's Again, it's not there's this state of nature we can get back to or just pure living out our sexuality, which later readers of Freud, Marcuse, from, they will try to tap into this and say there right. is a kind of revolutionary right. radical potential in here. Right. And I always thought it's interesting that Marcuse, who writes Eros and Civilization, which is an attempt to respond to civilization as discontent, and right. he says, if we liberated our own sexuality... Right, and a great deal of sort of communes and utopian communities going way back have been based on this. I mean, I've always wanted to write a book that I'll never write on the American utopian communities. A lot of them were based on sort of a free sexuality. Right. And all of them came to grief, partly, partly because they were too interested in non-reproductive sex. You know? and, and what Freud says, because you can liberate sexuality all you want, you still have the structure internally that you will actually look for things to feel guilty about. Yep. You will not remove guilt. Right. You will not remove the superego. Right. This idea that you can free the psyche of these internal structures so people are trying to remove the external societal structures. And I think Freud, in some sense, would have been in favor of that, right? Because he thought that bourgeois marriage and sexuality were much too restrictive. Right. But he would not have bought into some of the utopian aims of those utopian communities. Because the utopian aim is to, to liberate the individual. Right. In a group, right? In a group, interesting. Uh, right, like in a commune, right? right? But I just think he thinks that's not possible. Because there the pathology of groups takes over. And what is this pathology? How do groups function? How do they bond for Freud? Well, it's again like the formation of the superego, except now not in the individual, in the group. You create more and more rules, restrictions. The superego comes to dominate. And look at the number of communes and things like that, which eventually produce a rather tyrannical leader. Right. Freud would not be at all surprised by that, right? Right. What happens in the group among the group members is that kind of libidinal energy channeled toward all the people in the group that you start to... As he says, what began in relation to the father is completed in relation to the group. That is the punishing renunciation demanded originally by the father, then the father internalized as, as conscience, as superego, is made worse by having to live in groups in relation to others because that leads to an increase in guilt that the society just can't handle. So instead of eros dominating in the group, destructiveness comes to dominate mm -hmm. in the group, aggression among each other. 
Do you see a way out of this? It seems to keep on running into the fact that we cannot resolve our own contradictions. No, well, that's the tragic part of Freud's humanism. I think he really thinks that humans are doomed to only a modicum of happiness. And if only by the fact that life is so short and ends in death... And along with Rousseau and Freud, you get a, a certain measure of Hobbes by this point, right. you know, <laughs> that is the war of each against all. I mean, I'm not quite as pessimistic as Freud, even at this age. I do think that there would be ways to promote the erotic rather than the destructive in groups. And so I, I believe mm -hmm. that politics are possible. Mm -hmm. I think Freud by the end didn't believe that, right. but certainly in our current state in this country, it's mostly about the narcissism of small differences and the and a kind of Hobbesian warfare. That what's channeled in groups is a kind of aggression rather than Aggr a kind exactly. of like, expansive belonging or something. Or aggression, destructiveness of others, hatred, yeah. And I think this is why Freud remains so relevant, that he showed that what we take for granted, that how we live together and it functions. Some people which is also, he's writing in Europe in 1930. Uh, right. There are people all over the world for whom it isn't working at all. We know this. This is the height of imperial colonial reach. <laughs> right, right. It's an exploitation of the entire world on behalf of this ideal of European civilization. But I think what he exposes is he said, civilization, you cannot take it for granted. It takes a huge amount of work. And you keep on being, stepping into the trap of thinking, now we've managed it, now we're civilized. That's absolutely right. And it takes a huge amount of work and the renunciation which is demanded by civilization needs to be taken into account by other softening mechanisms, right, connected to eros. And when you get the way we have in, in the United States at the moment, a sadist as your leader, you're in real trouble, I think. That's a really interesting thought because that hadn't been unknown, of course, in the kind of monarchies of, you know, olden times. But in this country, there had been an idea that no one's going to reach the highest office. Right. It doesn't have the general inclination to help everyone. To reach out, yeah. right, and bring people together. But when you have a president who is consciously and overtly divisive, it's a real problem. I mean, it does remind, I mean, let's keep a sense of proportion, but it does remind you of the rise of Hitler. It really does. Well, that this is the appeal by a leader to the aggressive tendencies right. of individuals to and, tap into and liberate and them. the exclusion of some of the population yeah. and yeah and to to activate this in people to say yeah. this is how we can bond if we yeah. all activate our aggressive impulses right. right which freud says and people will rally around that as you said at the expense of other people right. who will be right. excluded in that yeah this essay civilization and discontents it's interesting in the when you've written and you've edited a couple of books on freud sort of in the freudian canon in the there's a whole canon of psychoanalysts Then there's a faction within Freud. There's, I mean, Freud is a contested figure. We know there are people who've made it their career to try to dismantle and destroy uh, Freud. Yes, indeed. Try to recruit people <laughs> right. like that, right? And there are other people who have actually still think he has something so important to say. I'm kind of curious whether you think these are powerful fictions and myths or whether they are some scientific truth, which is usually where the divide is sort of, as people say, it's unscientific, can't be proven. And other people say, That's not the criteria to use. You know, I think your attitude towards Freud, sometimes I think it comes down to your own sort of psychic composition. To me, Freud has always seemed mostly profoundly true. I mean, I don't accept all the twists and turns of his thought. 
But again, I come back to the notion of the tragic humanist. It seems to me he illuminates human behavior much better than any of his detractors. I just last year co-taught with a professor of German at Princeton, a course called Freud and His Readers. Mm-hmm. And it's extraordinary the interest that there still is in Freud, right? Students really think that this is something you have to know and that it is really illuminating of the human condition. And that's the way I feel about it. Well, it, because we all live in sort of Freudian paradigms and sort of the idea of the unconscious, the idea that dreams mean something, that there are things in ourselves that we cannot know, but they determine our actions. Right. So this irrational part of ourselves, which I'm friends with economists here at NYU, very distinguished economists, who actually tell you gleefully that now they discover that people sometimes act against their own best interest. Yeah, it's about time the economists (laughs) discovered that, yes. And they really try to make sense of it in a kind of, I think, sort of, it's kind of an interesting way, but there's a certain... From my perspective, naivete, when I actually said to one of my colleagues here, I said, you know, Freud has written about this. He said, yes, you know, we are actually talking to psychologists and studying this. Of course, psychology now is in a completely different place. It does studies. It wants to be scientific. It does samples. It doesn't do this anymore. It doesn't write speculative books. And they don't read Freud. They read sort of textbook Freud most often in psychology departments. I think that's a great pity because, among other things, Freud is a great writer, a great essayist. I was thinking when you were talking of the essay on the ego and the id, which Mm -hmm. has these wonderful metaphors of the relation of the ego and the id, where he says the id is like a horse that the ego can scarcely master. And if the horse wants to go back to the stable by itself, all the ego can do is follow. And then later on, he says that the ego is like a constitutional monarch who cannot really oppose the decrees of the parliament, the parliament being the id, right? And there's always this sense of the frailty of human command. And that seems to be absolutely right. And it's interesting that he sees this during the war and then in the early 30s, and he says... We shouldn't trust the way we are so in control of ourselves. I think this is the devastating insight. And he doesn't exempt anybody. And he says, there's not good people. We don't have to worry about this. We have to worry about these barbarians out there who are not controlling their impulses, which has always been a way to get rid of this problem. Other people are barbaric or not human or cruel or sadistic. The barbarian is within ourselves, yeah. Which is a very hard thing to realize, I think, because then you yourself are as responsible for behavior as blaming all the other people, which is much easier. Everybody else has a problem, and I'm kind of a civilized moral being. It's very hard for humans to accept that. I mean, look, Freud was writing at a point where he thought that religion was very much in decline and would cease to be relevant not far in the future. And look what's happened. Religion has had a a resurgence in all sorts of fundamentalist forms all over the globe. And this is a rejection of the Freudian insight, right? It is looking for salvation in some other kind of myth. He starts out civilization and discontents on religion, and he says it provides solace. It's, it allows us to live life and feel someone and something is taking care of us. Right, but he can't believe in that solace, right? It's what the child wants. Someone will right. take care of me, provide answers, and provide meaning. One of the complications is that Freud strips away this idea and he says this is just a fantasy. Right. There's no other beyond. There's no, right. there's no greater. No, he says later in Civilization is Discontents, I can offer no solace, no consolation. And that's really what everyone is looking for. 
Well, and in the early essay that you brought in 1915, essay, the second part of the essay is that we can't face the fact that we will die. So yeah. We invent all these things and we deny right, it. I mean, exactly. I edited a book of the poet Rilke's Letters of Condolence, which are about 24 letters. So Rilke wrote 15,000 letters, 24 of which only are letters of condolence. They are so direct and unrelenting. And he says, I cannot console you, but you must now think about what just happened to you and you must actually face it and live through this pain. And Rilke was quite famously um, not inclined to do psychoanalysis. He met Freud once yeah. in oh. 1914. Lou Andreas Alamo introduced him in Munich. And he met Freud and he was quite interested. And he read all the essays he could get, but he said, I don't want to get psychoanalyzed because it'll not only get rid of my demons, but it'll scare all the angels too. Meaning I won't be creative. Right, right. And actually this is an interesting sentence by a poet because Freud did say a lot of people become poets, become artists, they sublimate because they have these impulses they can't live out and instead of channeling them toward aggression, they actually produce worthwhile objects and projects, right? right? And in some ways, wouldn't this be a way to sort of say society could function if people learn to do things that are meaningful to them? Well, I think Freud would be very much in favor of that. And he thought all the poets and philosophers were his real predecessors rather than medical men. But I don't think he sees everyone being capable of that, right? I mean, if we all were Rilke's, <laughs> the right. world would be a different kind of place. I don't know what Not it would be like. Not a perfect place, I don't think. <laughs> no, <he was> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We have to ask yeah. all of the women who he left behind, right. <laughs> heartbroken, <laughs> right. and generated his great poetry right. out of. Right. But there's yet something. It's not you have to become Michelangelo or a Rilke or a great poet, but that there is this force in us. There is this drive. And we have to do something with it. To pretend it doesn't exist, I, he says, Freud says, that's a great mistake. Right. To think it will just be there. And because then he said, then when push comes to shove, when there's a war, when there's a crisis, it'll come out. Exactly. Or yeah. it get activated. Right. So there is something about society allowing for this to be channeled into something more productive. Well, I think, I think he's in favor of that. And, and he likes that mild narcosis of art. And after all, he wrote a good deal about art and literature. I just think at least in terms of the writing he's doing at this period, he's pessimistic about that possibility. That people could sublimate their worst impulses. That the community as a whole That's, could yeah. sublimate to that extent, that it tamped down the burden of guilt and aggressiveness. Okay. It's interesting. People have written about sports as a kind of social valve mm -hmm. of letting all this aggression out or something, and that people get so invested in teams. They allowed all of their tribal instincts and nationalistic instincts. But does that decrease aggression? At times, it seems to just increase it. I mean, it's like well, English football fans, for instance. Yeah, yeah that's actually a each other, really yes. Freudian kind of insight. Yes, we absolutely. thought this would channel all this negative right. energy into the right place, and then they become more violent. Right. And right. so it actually encourages it. Yeah. Now, there was a piece in the Times this morning about how rational objections to Brexit seem to get nowhere, right? It just mm -hmm. increases the sort of horde sense of the two sides, that they're right. And, yeah. You said this essay is published in 1930, so he's seeing the rise of fascism. And in some ways, when you think about him, he's seeing the appeal of irrational thought, of unreason, of unmitigated racism, xenophobia, and people are falling for it. Yes, that's right. So for a, such a highly cultured, sophisticated, incredibly gifted writer, it must have been a very strange experience to say people around me will buy into the worst possible things. And to give you one other example, 
Rilke in 1926, this is the year he dies in December, but before that he falls for Mussolini for a moment because he loves the muscular language of yeah. Mussolini. It's a uh, great scandal for Rilke lovers. It's very troubling. And interestingly enough, Rilke is corrected by this Contessa Aurelia Gallarati-Scotti, who is from Venice and writes to him and says, you have no understanding of politics. You're a poet. And you fall for language and don't understand that it harbors violence. So there's a countess in Venice who understands what's happening in Mussolini in 1926, and Rilke doesn't. Or there are poets like D'Annunzio, for instance, who are attracted precisely to that violence, right? So you have the powerful language of a Mussolini, ultimately, the rhetorical force of a Hitler, of these demagogues. And yeah. then you have the powerful language of Freud, but who doesn't promise the easy solution. That's right. right. He doesn't right. give you the easy answer that you feel feel better about yourself. And he wants to take away the easy solace, in fact, from you. Yeah. But I think this goes to the heart of where Freud sits in the humanities and what it is to teach people a knowledge that's not comforting. That's right. A kind of negative knowledge of themselves that they have to have. Yes. Right. And what do we do with that? Because that's what he says. We look for consolation. We look for approval. We look to be loved. And then we give him, and then you teach them Joseph Conrad and Freud right. and things like that. Well, I mean, I think Freud's ideal really is some notion of insight, right? And that insight is not going to be consolation. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to enable you to see what you are doing more clearly. And that's about all you can hope for. And there's some hope in that, though, to be aware, for example, yeah. that some things you're doing because what he calls your superego or your guilt feelings are getting bigger and bigger right. by what you imagine you could do or you want to do. And it's not helping. It's not productive. You can at least come to some understanding of what's driving you, right? right. Even if you can't stop it or control it. Yeah. When you think of him in his practice, you said there's a kind of modicum of happiness. We can be moderately happy. What did he hope to do for his patients when they left finally after a long analysis? And, and Freud analyzed people, I think, five days a week, same hour every day, right? Oh, yeah, and for several years with some of them. I think it is precisely that capacity to understand what the story of your life has meant to you and to be able to deal with it with more insight. I mean, if you take a really difficult case like the Wolfman, mm -hmm. Was the wolfman ever cured? Well, he certainly came to some sort of understanding of what had gone wrong in the narrative of his life and mm -hmm. was able to live a kind of very modest bourgeois existence as an insurance agent in Vienna right. after the war. It's not, I mean, that, that's not a great cure with... Uh, with much applause, but it does enable people to get on with their lives. So in some ways, what he also tells them, what you look for is unattainable. Yeah. Kind of constant happiness. Right. Eros fulfilled all the time. <laughs> right. Like Anne Carson has this brilliant book on Eros, The Bittersweet. She has a moment when she talks about Sappho and Socrates ultimately and the, the Greek idea of Eros, which is the attempt to hold on to a moment when you're outside of time. When you're in love with somebody mm. and you actually drop out of time because it feels eternal, because you're so connected to somebody. Yep. And you want to hold on to this, not this moment, but this emptiness of this timelessness. That's good. And Carson links it to this, the invention of writing. She says writing allows you to revisit these moments, which yeah. is very unusual and new and different, and it hadn't happened before. Freud says this is not attainable. 
you will not be fulfilled and happy, but at least you will know why you're not fulfilled right. and happy. Right. It's the most you can hope for. Yeah. yeah. Just to go back to this, you said there are so many different factions around Freud, and but we would still read him as a, you said, a tragic humanist and on the level of great poets and philosophers, not clinicians. Yeah, uh, and I think that's why Freud has largely devolved into the humanities within the university. He is someone we have to read on a par with great philosophers like Hegel, Nietzsche, whoever, because of what he teaches us about life and interpreting life. Mm-hmm. As a humanist. Yeah. As a humanist, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. When I was in school, there's a couple of books I really think about quite a lot. So I read, after graduate school, Franz Fanon, Black Skin, White Masks, mm-hmm. which is an attempt to understand the psychology of the postcolonial condition. Right. He's a doctor. It's a, he's a doctor, it's, yeah. It's, he's a basically applying the entire idea of the psyche of unconscious motivation of the superego to the post-colonial condition. Yeah. And so I think what's interesting that Freud generates things he couldn't have anticipated at all. There's Marcuse, who, as we know, Angela Davis refers to us as he changed her life. <laughs> so you have these impacts in areas which Freud probably couldn't foresee and probably was completely blind to in a certain way. One last question. I was kind of interested, you know this better than I do, there's been a huge discussion in feminism about Freud for now probably 50 years, right? Yes. People have either said he liberated women in a certain way, but he also produces a paradigm that traps women in the secondary status. Yeah, I think that there's been a certain strain in feminist thought which has said you cannot ignore Freud, starting with Juliet Mitchell's Psychoanalysis and Feminism, which is, I think, from the early 70s, or the work of Toral Moy, for instance, that Freud certainly is blinded to certain things, but you have to get to those blindnesses by way of psychoanalytic thinking if you're going to really understand what feminism is or what woman is in mm-hmm. relation to desire and so on. Because mm-hmm. what you said earlier, you said sexuality is such a powerful thing for Freud and so volatile, and Absolutely. it remains an enigma. Yep. You know, one of your uh, colleagues, my teacher, Shoshana Feldman, wrote this book, What Does Woman Want? And yes. Freud couldn't answer the question in a way, but what he says is it remains the most puzzling thing that we experience difference, which is both structuring and the most exciting thing in our lives, in a way. And we don't know how to make sense of it. Right, right. Just to say, oh, Freud is a blinded masculinist is too easy, right? One has to take that question seriously and think it through beyond Freud in the way that I think some theorists have done. So to read him against himself in a Read way. Read him against himself, exactly. That's the way to do it. There's uh, enough to, in there. It's interesting. Yeah. yeah, And a lot of the conversations I have, this comes up in a way where they can use the tools of the tradition to undo some of, or to open up some of the blind spots, right. which is the practice of feminist reading, right. of deconstructive reading. Audre Lorde very famously has this quote, which a lot of people quote, the master's tools cannot dismantle the master's house. Right. But then she goes on and says, but if we only have the master's tools, we should start there and use them for the moment until we develop our own tools. Exactly. A blanket rejection of the tools is not going to do you any good. Yeah. 
So in addition to Civilization and Discontents, what's the books that you think our listeners should pick up on? Civilization and Discontents, a really short book. It's actually some 50 pages or so, I think, in some versions. Uh, yeah, a lot of books by Freud are short, not the interpretation of dreams, but a lot of the... <laughs> I think, for me, Beyond the Pleasure Principle is a precious book. I mean, I know that many psychoanalysts don't accept it, and it's weirdly mythic and poetic in the end. He says he cannot explain the origins of sexual difference, so he turns to Plato's symposium and Aristophanes' myth of the androgyne that originally, you know, it was bisexual being that was split in half and the two halves have been running around ever since trying to get together. (laughs) Maybe the experience of many people (laughs) still. We're trying to find our soulmate. It makes a lot of sense, but I think that's a brilliant book. I think so many of Freud's essays, constructions and analysis late in his career, Mm -hmm. which is in theory, about psychoanalytic technique, but really has a radical thinking about narrative, for instance. What mm. do you do if you can't retrieve things? Well, how you construct them and how that mm. construction can be just as good as a recovered memory because it makes sense of your life. I, Wonderful thinking. This makes me think. I was interested in one thing you said a little bit earlier, how we construct a narrative of our lives. Yeah. This idea that we actually live through time but then we also tell ourselves constantly that exactly. there's a past behind us, we're in the present and there will be a future, that we actually live in a narrative. To what degree does this narrative have to be coherent or beginning, middle, end? Or can it be a very postmodern, multi-originary story? Well, I think we're always revising it. That's the thing. We're always trying to make sense of what we've done, including mistakes we've made or awful things we've done and recover them in some sort of way that makes sense to us. And I think that's a narrative process which can never come to an end. I mean, you can never say finish. Life says finish for you, right? And it's up to right. someone else to say, well, I mean, that's, that's Walter Benjamin, right? right? Death is the flame at which we warm our shivering lives, right? We right. read about death in order to understand what we can never know in our own lives, right. which is the meaning of life. And Freud teaches us what you just said. We look at the things, the mistakes we made, the wrong decisions. And we also recognize that the, the wishes or the fantasies or the desires were as powerful as the reality that we lived through. Yeah. But at some point, we thought this person was incredibly meaningful to us. Whether or not that person reciprocated, this was animating our inner life for so long. So I think Freud teaches us that our attachments or our distaste for things can be as powerful as what we really lived through in material life and circumstances. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. So it opens up to this, this other layer that the narrative of our life is not just, I lived here, I met these people, I was with these people, but maybe for years you were what he would call cathected or had an affection for something that was maybe totally removed from you. Right. It's understanding what bugs us, what drives us. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I want to thank you for this conversation. It's really been wonderful. And I hope to have you back on the podcast for another book at some point later. That would be great. My pleasure, Uli. Thank you. Thank you.